My name is Solis, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Solis. Yeah, I um, have been uh, friends and working with this speaker tonight um, who originally came to us from Southern California. Um, Was it four years ago? Five. Five years ago. And um, it only seems like ten. And so, um, (laughs) but a friend of mine, Gio, called me up and said, oh, we're sending someone your way. He's a live one. And I told him to look you up for sponsorship. And I was like, thanks, Gio. I still haven't paid him back yet, but I will. And so um, he, uh, Mike introduced himself to me when he got here. And um, we've been working together. And I have to say, I think it's been an amazing transformation. Seriously. Um, the person he was when he arrived um, to the person he is today, I'm just astounded. Um, I'm always happy to see him. I'm always happy to hear how he's doing because it's just been an upward trajectory for the entire time I've known him, which makes me very happy. And so um, tonight's speaker is uh, Michael. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Mike. Uh, my sobriety date is October 10th of 2001, and I am very grateful uh, for that. Um, I want to welcome all the newcomers. Uh, you're in the right place. Um, let's see. I um, yeah, I grew up in uh, Southern California. I'll just start from where what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So. Um, you know, I was, uh, we were, we grew up in uh, East L.A. in a little town called Huntington Park. And, uh, you know, my parents were just normal Irish Catholic alcoholics, just like, uh, just like it's written to be, you know. And uh, uh, they, uh, you know, they were together until they both died. You know, it was like till death do you part. And uh, so... Um, I was the accident that came along. Uh, they weren't supposed to have kids after my sister was born, but um, they kind of got the bonus plan with me. I'm the only redhead. I'm the only the only gay and the only alcoholic. Well, recovering alcoholic anyway. So I don't take their inventory, and so even though I kind of just did. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I just think I had a normal upbringing. You know, I went to Catholic school for the first uh, five years, and then we moved to a little town called Downey. Um, and you know, by the time I came along, uh, my brothers were older than me and my oldest brother was 10 years older. Uh, and then the next one was eight years older and my sister seven years older. And, um, you know, by the time I came along, my dad was done like doing camping and fishing and baseball and all the other stuff that they do with kids, you know, and, um, they, uh, so my oldest brother, I kind of latched onto him and he would take me uh, with him to, you know, they had me drinking and smoking when I was like six years old, you know, they thought it was fun to uh, get me wasted on rum and coke. And we go to this little, uh, fishing spot called Crystal Lake. And, uh, I didn't know how much I was going to have a part of my life 30 years later, but, um, it, uh, and, you know, we just, I, I just had fun with those guys, you know, and, uh, they always told me, you know, we'll take you with me, but you can't act, no whining, no complaining, um, just, you know, and, and I, and I loved it, you know, and so, but, you know, I think it kind of, cause I wasn't running around with kids my age. I was running around with my older brothers who were 10 years older than me and, and their friends. And so, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything, uh, 
I think it all is part of my character, you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, we moved down to Oceanside, California, and I uh, went to um, high school there. And, um, you know, I, uh, you know, back then, I didn't know what I was. I didn't know if I was gay, straight, or what. And, you know, my, I just didn't, you know, being raised a Catholic and going to Catholic school, you know, I, some people say they're a recovering Catholic. I'm just a Catholic, you know. I don't practice that anymore. I consider myself more spiritual. I don't feel the need to go to an organized religion, my own opinion, and pay, give them part of my salary to secure myself a spot in heaven, according to them, you know. And so I just, uh, and especially since finding this program, you know, I just consider myself more spiritual, and, and that's that's that on that. Um, I, uh, um, you know, and... I didn't want to bring shame on the family, you know, because I was afraid that uh, my parents would, uh, I don't know, it was, it was just weird. I, and so, you know, I had girlfriends and, you know, I, my friends would be like, when are you going to get a girlfriend? And I'm like, I'm going to wait till after high school when I have time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then high, after high school came and I'm like, whew, all right, you know. And so, you know, for the, for the prom, I helped my shop teacher's wife move to Northern California and I drove their moving truck. I thought that was more fun than going to the prom, you know, because I was like, why would I want to do any of that? So, but uh, just kind of, uh, um, but you know, when I was 18, I graduated high school and uh, I got my brother to buy me a, uh, a quart of uh, Yukon Jack whiskey, which is like 100 and, 101 or I don't know, it's, I think regular whiskey is 80 proof. That stuff is like 100 proof. And um, so I, you know, I got that thing out. We were going to a George Jones concert down the lakeside, which is uh, kind of East San Diego County. And a lot of, uh, they have rodeo grounds there. And it was uh, George Jones and Tammy Wynette. And I sat in the back of my little pickup truck and my buddy drove and uh, sat back there with like a big gulp cup with Coke. And I mean, I was, by the time we got there, I don't even, couldn't even tell you my name, you know? And so, and so we came back and we stopped by his house and I talked to his dad, everything was fine. And then as I was driving home, you know, I had an, uh, a tape deck. Uh, I mean, this was 1985. And so I went to rewind the tape and uh, I went to sleep and went through an intersection and uh, T-boned another car. And I mean, it was a mess. And so I could spend the night in jail, you know, and my parents were out of town and my dad, was, before he left, he's like, why don't you go out and do something stupid this weekend? And, you know, he was just saying, you know, he was, didn't mean, that. he got back. He's like, I didn't mean that literally. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah. So, um, they put me in jail as a, with a felony and, uh, I mean, I was scared to death. You know, they put me in the cell with this guy that burned down the Fallbrook public library. He had a, he had an awful habit of lighting fires around town and they had, uh, I mean, he was, uh, it was a good eye opening experience for somebody who's just 18 years old, still wet behind the ears, you know, and, um, so anyway, I, you know, I, I got a, a lawyer and, uh, they reduced it to a misdemeanor and, uh, you know, the first they sent me to a public defender and the guy's like, oh, you're going to go to jail for five years for this. And, the lawyer, the defense attorney I got, he's like, even Judge Roy Bean wouldn't give you five years, you know, that's, you, have, you don't have a record, you know, and so, um, anyway, and then, uh, um, and then a year later, I started, 
you know, there's two things I wanted to do when I was a kid. My grandma worked for TWA like back in the 60s, 50s and 60s in New York. And um, she would always come out and they'd get me on the airplane. And I was like, I want to do this, you know. And so two things I wanted to do as a kid was either fly airplanes or drive trucks. And uh, I soloed when I was 16, 17, something like that. And then I ran out of money. And then a year after high school, I started driving a truck for a living. And uh you know, I uh, when I went to get insurance, I, I don't know, for some reason, you know, that guy's like, you have anything on your record? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Just this little DUI that got my, I didn't think a personal car was going to matter in the truck, you know, but it's one license. But anyway, young, dumb, and dumber. And so uh, I, uh, um, you know, when he found out about that, he wasn't real happy, but he was desperate for drivers. And I mean, I would, we drove just the biggest junk on the road, but you know, it was a great place for me to start that career. I mean, I ran, I bent more bumpers and ran over more shit on jobs, you know, for trying to get in. Cause you know, back then I'm six foot tall and 120 pounds and I'm driving this semi truck. It's a, uh, with no power steering. It's got two sticks coming out of the floor. And I mean, you're just busy, you know, just trying to get the thing down the road. But, you know, I look back and it is, it, it, it's fine. So anyway, um, I did that, uh, you know, and in my twenties I had girlfriends. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I just was like, this, this isn't for me, you know, but I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I don't think I had sex, but once or twice in my twenties, you know, and so, but boy, I made up for it in my thirties, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, you know, I went to work for this, uh, when I was 25, we were hauling rock and sand market and the market kind of like what it's doing right now slowed up and we didn't have any work. And so I went out on the road driving a, a brand new extended hood Pete with a sleeper. And I mean, it was, it was a nice truck. And, um, you know, we spent half the time in LA and the other half the time up in Northern California. And so, you know, I have friends all over, uh, because when you're, you know, you just, you, you end up, it was, it was a time of my life that I, you know, it was, uh, I was just having a good time, you know, I didn't have any cares, didn't have any, uh, anything to go home to. And so, you know, I slept in the truck and, um, usually off on the weekends. And so, uh, anyway, I came off the road and I went to work for this, uh, ready mix concrete company, uh, as a Holland cement powder. And, um, I'm telling you this cause it, uh, I don't know. I guess I was uh, about 30, I guess, and I took a job as a dispatcher. And, you know, we're regulated by the DOT. And so, you know, I was in there. And about this time, you know, uh, back then we didn't have grinder or scruff. Um, I think we might have had Adam for Adam and Manhunt. But what we did have was these phone sex lines. And it was, uh, you would go down and in the back of the gay rags, you'd find this phone number and you'd have to use, you can, you only got like 10 minutes on it. And so it was, it was a trip. It was like a lottery. It was like a, a lottery, you know? And, uh, so you, it just, you got like a couple of minutes with, with each person. And so, you know, I'm barely coming out of the closet. So, you know, if it has a pulse, I'm interested, you know, pretty much. And so, uh, you know, and you, you listen to them and if they sound cute well then you jump in the car and you you know it's 35 miles down to san diego and 95 percent of the time it worked out there was a couple of times they opened the door and i'm like yeah i don't think this is gonna work out but um i met this guy and uh he was dealing drugs and 
I started hanging out with him and started seeing him more often. And, you know, that old thing, you know, if you hang around the barbershop, you're going to get a haircut at some point. And so, um, you know, my little uh, drug use career started out with, you know, I went to the white party in 2000, I think it was. And, you know, I took like five or six hits of ecstasy and that lasted me for five days. You know, the next weekend I was putting them in my mouth and shoving them up my ass and everything else trying to get high and nothing was working, you know, a year later, but, uh, and then, you know, I, you know, and then you meet more people in that scene and, uh, next thing you know, you know, GHB was introduced and then, uh, crystal meth. And so meth is what got me here. Um, I had gone, uh, you know, I showed up to work one morning after many days of coming to work, barely coherent, you know, and, you know, and they set me down at the front desk. So when people would come in to apply for jobs, I would hand them the, uh, the application. And then, you know, I'd talk to them for a minute. And if I thought they were cute or nice or whatever, I would say, yeah, this guy's actually kind of good. But if they cussed or anything, I'd be like, don't cuss him from because he's not down with that, you know? And so, uh, and then he would ask me, but, you know, after coming to work, just after being up for a couple of days and, you know, if you haven't been eating regularly and you're kind of strung out, uh, it kind of shows, I guess. And so, <laughs> you know, and I was, I remember talking to the girl from HR, she stopped by, you know, and I would sit at that desk and I'd be, I'd have my eyes closed thinking that nobody noticed that I was asleep, but I mean, they all knew what was going on. And, you know, I'm losing weight, you know, I'm 180 pounds now. Back then I was hmm, 120, 122. I mean, I was just super skinny and, you know, I couldn't hardly hold my pants on because I just everything was too big all of a sudden. And, but you know how we, how we do. And so I, uh, you know, she starts asking me questions and I'm answering the questions. And then I start answering the questions of the voice that I have going on in my head. And she, you know, it's that I'm talking to her and I'm kind of in and out of consciousness. And she's like, what on earth are you talking about? And I was like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. You know, and it was it wasn't long after that, that they I showed up to work one morning and my name was on the time clock for a drug test. And, uh, you know, this was like three days after my 34th birthday. And I was like, man, God damn it, you know. I said, I told my boss, I said, I don't think this is going to work out too well for either one of us. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I did meth night before last. And he's like, meth? And I was like, yeah. And um, he's like, so, you know, of course I, he's like, well, it's fed, it's mandated by the DOT and you have to take the test. And I said, okay. So I went and peed in the cup and sure enough, I failed. So uh, they just told me, they said, you know what, just go to some meetings and try to change your life. And uh, so I went to one meeting a week as in, it was called Hope Without Dope. It was a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And I uh, would go in there and then it was dollar drink night at the bar right behind my house, which was a cute little gay bar there. And I went and got drunk. Cause that's what I, I was like, I'm only here. You know, I read the steps on the wall and I'm like, well, that's easy, you know, and I got that, you know, I didn't know anything about the program. I just was trying to get my boss off my back. And you know, and it was a couple of months before you know, I'd wait for the big weekends and go use and on Friday night, if it was a three day weekend. And then by the time 4th of July rolled around, I was right back to using every night of the week. And, um, and then I, uh, um, <laughs> went to another country and Western, I got to stop going to these country and Western singers, but I went to saw another, a couple of guys from work were these, these two truck drivers and they're like, Hey, we're going to go see 
Tracy Lawrence. And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll go. So they picked me up at my house in uh, Hillcrest. You know, it's in the gay part of town. And, you know, these butch truck drivers come over to pick me up. And I told them, I said, yeah, I mean, I live in Hillcrest for a reason. I'm sure you guys have figured it out. They're like, you're gay? I'm like, yeah, I'm gay. You know, and so <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, I guess you might say that, you know. And so, um, but don't tell anybody. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so um, we... Uh, um, yeah, we got just completely wasted. It was a Sunday night. They dropped me off in front of my house and stand in front of my house was a guy waiting for his drug dealer who just happened to be my drug dealer. And I was like, wow, what a coincidence. So I, was, <laughs> I spent my last $40 on a little bag of crystal thinking I'm going to, this will be for next weekend. And, uh, yeah, 20 minutes later, I smoked up what I didn't spill on the floor, you know, and uh, and off I went to the bathhouse. And, you know, this is I'm like, what the hell am I doing? You know, and and, uh, you know, I didn't even think that nothing happened. All I did was like a hamster on a wheel. You know, if I, I you know, you go into like I was, you know, with alcohol, you go into a blackout with drugs. I felt like I went into like a brownout where I just remember getting there. And I remember leaving. And, uh, you know, I called out sick to work that day and I called and my boss was like what's going on and I said well you know all those problems I had uh, six months ago and I failed that drug test I said they're all back and he, he's I said but I need help and you know it's just it's those little words I need help and uh that was on a Monday Tuesday I went in we talked about it he made me take a drug test every week he said that if he ever sees that kind of uh, behavior again then uh, there'd be no questions asked that I'd be out the door. And so, um, and so I went home, you know, it's Tuesday. I went home and I thought, well, he already knows. So, you know, of course I did what I had left and drank the rest of the vodka, you know, just whatever. I was done, but I just wasn't quite done. And so the next day I went back to that meeting that I'd gone to once a week is, and, uh, raised my hand as a newcomer. And at the end of the meeting, he asked me to share, uh, the guy that asked me to share was the chair that night, and uh, that was Patrick Leva, and uh, he became my first sponsor. And uh, he told me, call me whenever you have a good idea. <laughs> and don't go in, because I used to go in and tell my boss, oh, I got like four days, you know, and my, <laughs> my sponsor's like, you know what, don't, you don't have to tell him that. He's trying to run the business. He don't give a shit. What? He doesn't care if you're sober or not, as long as you're showing up and you're not doing meth. So whenever you think you need to tell him that, you need to call me. So, you know, I carried a newcomer chip that little back out there. They were like a little silver chip that looked like a silver dollar. And, you know, I just would, when I get, and you know what the difference was, is that instead of bolting out there before the end of the meeting and not talking to anybody and going to the bar and getting drunk, I stayed after and we'd all go to fellowship and then um, uh, and then I'd find out where the next meeting was and then the next meeting and the next meeting and you know and and before you know and I'd come to the meeting 15 minutes early and help them set up and then I'd go to fellowship afterwards and I just did that for they said go to 90 meetings in 90 days and if you're not completely satisfied we'll happily return your misery and I said okay you know, and they were like, it's just 90 meetings. It's one meeting a day. <laughs> like you spent more time in the bar, you know, getting drunk or trying to get drugs, you can make it to one meeting a day. And, you know, I probably went to a meeting every day for the first five years uh, 
just, you know, and if I missed a meeting, I go to two the next day. And, you know, it just kind of became a way of life. And I remember at the end of 90 days, I'm like, well, now what? They said, well, we'll go to 90 more. And 90 more. <laughs> and then a year, you know, you get a chip every 30 days and then every 90 days. And then you get a chip every year, you know. And uh, they said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I'm just going to keep going to meetings. You know, that's where all my friends are at. And, you know, I said, the only thing you got to change is everything. You know, you got to cut off those people that you're running around with. My first sponsor was like no bars, bathhouses, or bookstores in the first uh, 12 months. And so, yeah, and, you know, I went into a bar. I wasn't really into bookstores, but I guess that was, that was a thing back then. And uh, so, uh, you know, at four months, I was on a date, you know, because I listen, but I don't listen that well. <laughs> and so... Uh, I was in a, on a date. My date got up to go to the bathroom. This guy at the next table was cute, so I got his number. And then, you know, I went, we started hanging out, and it was more of a sexual relationship. And, uh, you know, a week later, he, I moved him in because, you know, that's that was my best thinking. You know, my sponsor, my first sponsor was like, what do you know about dating? He's like, open the big book. You know, the first page is blank. That's what you know about dating. That's what you know about living. That's what you know about anything. So, you know, you need to... I was like, okay, and you know, so I moved him in a week later, and I moved him out a week, moved him in, moved him out, and so uh, when he didn't come home one night, you know, I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm four months over and thinking I'm, I got this figured out, you know. I used to love to see that, uh, uh, it was like a picture of two, two locomotives on the same track going, they just crash right into each other, and they said that's what um, the rehab romance it looks like um, <laughs> if you were to put it in a picture and, <laughs> and they re- was uh, having a relationship in the first 12 months this is that I mean this is this thing is like porn miracle growing all your character defects well 20 years having a relationship it's like porn miracle grow on your character defects it's, it doesn't change you know it, all the things in me that I don't but you know the thing is if I like if I don't like something about you it's something that I don't like about me that I there's something I see that I'm doing myself that I see in you that I don't mo- most of the time it's the things I don't like about myself and uh, a lot of that is true um, so anyway my mom and dad you know um, my mom and dad used to come to see me take a cake or a chip every year uh, I lived in San Diego and they lived in uh, Vista California and they would always come down we go to dinner and, you know, I mean, we've heard some really colorful stories from the, because they'd have a 10-minute speaker, which was probably, was usually like a newcomer, and then they'd have a 45-minute speaker. And, you know, the 10-minute speaker is talking about this one guy's, my mom had just got up there with me to take a chip, and I'm sitting next to him, and this guy's talking about when he was a hooker and what he was doing, and, you know, he's <laughs> having sex and being very, very graphic, graphic about him when he got done my dad looked over at me and he goes well that was colorful <laughs> I was like all right good you know and so um so you know I uh I was you know I was um but I drove for like 11 years I dispatched for nine and then on the last two years I went back to driving a truck and um you know, I had an opportunity. I was at a family function and I was with my brother-in-law and I said, hey man, you know what, I'm trying to figure out what, I want to go to work for BMW. And he's like, what do you do? What do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, finance or maybe service advisor. And 
he said, well, I could, you know, I can probably get you hooked up with somebody down here locally in Oceanside. And I said, no, I want to work for you. And he's like, well, you're going to have to move to L.A. And I said, well, I'll just move in with you and my sister. <laughs> just half joking, half serious. He's like, that's fine with me as long as it's not permanent. And so that's what I did. I I was six years sober. I was 40 years old. And I packed up all my things. And, you know, I, I didn't know how. When I drove a truck, I didn't know how to get out of my own way. I was so scared about trying to take a leap of faith and because I didn't think that it was going to work out. And, uh, you know, I went to work for him and uh, parking cars. And, uh, you know, I, I set down a goals list. You know, this is where I want to be in three months and six months and two years and five years. And, you know, and I wrote that stuff down. And uh, I uh, all those things came true. It was I want to be a service advisor. I want to live in West Hollywood. I want to own property. Uh, I want to own multiple properties and you know all that stuff happened almost exactly on the timeline but I wrote that stuff down I threw it in a drawer and the only reason why I share that is because uh, if you have goals in life uh, and, and it is really what you want to do at that you know they my goals are different now than they were back then um, but when you write them down you don't have to look at them every day you can look them at, at them every day but they are in the back of my head and they all came uh, to fruition. And so anyway, so I've moved to LA and, uh, um, you know, that move was easy cause I was moving with a bunch of guys into a, you know, LA has meetings. That was the thing, you know, a Saturday night meeting at like Hollywood squares that they packed it to the, at the seams, you know, and, but they serve dinner. They out somebody, it's like, uh, it's like citywide here only it happens every week where somebody bring they bring a bunch of food and they feed the homeless and whoever else wants to eat and so uh but you know and i had i you know when i was a year sober i started going to conferences the first one i went to was the hawaii uh, the aloha roundup in honolulu and then i went to the florida roundup in uh, miami and then i went to the big d roundup and then i came to austin one year and you know the thing about it is then you go there and you introduce yourself uh, you get to know people. And when you go up to these different conferences, you run into the people that you've met in the past and you start to build a network. And, uh, so anyway, uh, I was like, uh, I don't know, it was back in 2010. I was getting ready to go on a Mexico trip or something like that. And, uh, my mom had had a hernia, uh, surgery and, uh, <coughs> three months later she turned yellow and they were like, Hmm. So they ran some tests and it turned out she had pancreatic cancer and if you know anything about that cancer, it's a death sentence. There's nothing they can do about it. The only time they find out about it is when it's way too late. And so um, it had metastasized. And, uh, you know, I'm living in L.A. and I'm driving a leased car. And uh, I only share that because, you know, I'd, I was driving to San Diego every weekend. And I would take my dad shopping. And if my mom felt up to it, we'd take her, um, we would take her uh, to lunch or dinner or whatever. And, you know, and when the my dad would try to pay. And, you know, at the time I was making a lot, I was make, for me, I was making a lot of money. I was making three times as much money as I was making when I was driving a truck. Now I was working 14, 15 hours a day, uh, doing it, but I didn't care. It was like, I just want to figure out a way that I can get ahead. Um, those jobs and those dealerships are way in the rear view mirror now, but, um, I was doing well. And so I just made sure that they had everything they wanted, everything and anything. And I would make sure that my dad didn't pay for anything. And I'd, I'd leave him with like a hundred dollar bill every week. And, uh, my sister would go down on Monday 
and they go to or they go down and she'd go down on Tuesday and take them down for blood tests and then they'd stop at like uh, Chili's or something that was their favorite restaurant and my dad my sister called me one day and she says hey man you she's like Mike you know what dad opened his wallet to pay for dinner the other night and I know he's only on social security but he opened up his wallet and he had like eight $100 bills in there she's like you don't happen to know where that money's coming from do you and I said I don't know what does he tell you well, he won't tell me. I said, and you say he doesn't listen, because I told him, if you ever tell anybody where this money's coming from, I'm going to cut you off, you know? <laughs> and so she said, but you know, I know he, I know you're giving it to him, but she said, you know, I got to tell you, it makes, uh, it makes him feel like a man to be able to buy dinner for his wife and daughter. And I said, mission accomplished. You know, that's, I do that so that he can do things like that and not have to worry about it, because, I mean, they're both 79 years old, and so... Um, and my dad wasn't in very good health and my mom has pancreatic cancer and, you know, so, and they're trying to do chemo and it's not working. And so anyway, um, she, uh, when I would take my dad shopping, I'd be like, put your money away, old timer. You took care of the first 18. I'm gonna go ahead and get the rest. And, you know, it was nice to be able to, I always wanted to be able to provide for them, but all growing up, you know, driving a truck, I was living paycheck to paycheck. Now they say, oh, yeah, truck drivers make great money. I'm like, well, I'm not doing it again because I've, I've had my fill of that. You know, I want to drive truck on the with a shiny truck, and I want to go down the highway, uh, you know, down the boulevard on a nice sunny day. I don't want to deal with snow and rain and everything else. I just want to – I'm a sunshine trucker now. So <laughs> Actually, I'm not at all now. But uh, anyway, you know, my mom was uh, really sick and uh, she uh, was in hospice. And at the time I had a partner and uh, we went down there. And, uh, you know, the thing is, when I did my amends with my parents, uh, my living amends to them was that I would always be there for them no matter what. And, uh, you know, my dad called me on the morning of 4th of July when that same year and was like, you need to come down here. Your mom's not doing well. And. I mean, she was like two weeks before she passed away, so she was really sick. And uh, we took her down to Scripps, and I sat in that waiting room for like, we were there for 12 hours, you know, and um, they just said, you know, your mom's a dying woman. You have to take her home. There's nothing we can do. And, you know, telling her that was not the easiest thing that I ever really wanted to do. But um, so a couple weeks later, she's in hospice, and uh you know, we're getting ready to leave, and we take my dad to lunch. My dad told us a story about how he and my mom met with, like, in detail in, like, Woodside, New York in 1952 or something like that, and uh, we came back, and the nurse is like, you know, your mom just told me this this story about how she met your dad, and I was like, yeah, they're pretty well connected, you know, they're together 59 years, so... Um, and so I bent down to give my mom a kiss, and I said, you, you know, Mom, I'll see you next weekend. And she, in her faint little voice, she said, Michael, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for me and your father, and I love you. And I said, that's, well, you, that's how you raised us. You know, that's, was, that's, all you, you know, that's all you. And I said, you're welcome, and gave her a kiss. And I left, and she went into a coma two days later, and she died a week after that. And so it took a couple of weeks. I looked back, and I was like, that's the last thing she ever said to me. And I thought, man, what a gift, you know, that's, uh, but you know where that came from? It was her upbringing and it was Alcoholics Anonymous because if I was out there drinking and using, I'd have been like, 
Oh no. I think, I mean, when I was out there drinking and using, I mean, I remember Christmas rolled around. I used to always show up for Christmas. I never show, I didn't show up for Christmas that year. Cause I looked like Skeletor, you know, all sucked in teeth falling out. You know, I was a, I was a sight. And so, um, yeah, you know, and so I, I, sh- um, I can share that now without crying. Cause I just, Oh my God, it just choked me up so bad whenever I'd think about that. But you know, I don't have to go to their grave and and do my ninth step with them or my tenth step with them. You know, it's all out in the open. They knew everything about me. They accepted me for being gay. You know, all those years that I was afraid to come out. You know, my dad asked me one day, right after I failed that drug test at work, I had to move in with him <laughs> and my mom. You know, so here I am, 34 years old, living with my parents again. And my dad's like, why don't you get an apartment up here? It's close to your job. And I said... Now I want to live in Hillcrest. And he's like, Hillcrest? Why Hillcrest? I said, because I like the neighborhood. And he says, are you gay? And I said, I am, as a matter of fact. And I kept talking, and then I stopped, and I was like, I can't believe you just answered. I can't believe you just asked me that question. I can't believe I just answered it honestly. And he said, well, Michael, you'll always be my son no matter what. And just always know that I love you, and I just want you to be happy. And, you know, I almost started crying because I was just like, God dang, you know, all these years, I, they were like, why didn't you ever come out before? And I was like, nah, come on, you know, so, um, it, uh, anyway, uh, so, yeah, so, uh, my mom passed away, and then, uh, like, God, it was like nine months later, my dad passed away, and, um, you know, I got to spend time with him, I got to take him on trips, and, you know, and, uh, be the son that he wanted me to be, you know, and, uh, it was, uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, and then, uh, you know, after they were gone, it was, uh, in 2015, our 16, something like that. You know, the thing is about this program, you know, I had qualifying events when I got here of when I was going to drink and, you know, and I was, uh, you know, in my, in my mind, when I got here, when I got sober, I mean, honestly, I came in, I just wanted a quick spin dry to figure out how not to, I want to figure out how I could drink without using meth. And, uh, you know, in the last time I, when I was six months sober, I had a buddy of mine said, uh, I told him, I said, Frank, I don't think, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I think I'm just a drug addict. And he said, can you control the outcome of the first drink? And I said, hmm, let's see, I went to that concert, I really drunk. And then the idea presented itself and I was like, I'm going to buy some meth, you know, and just like that. And then I was off to the races. And so I was like, no, <laughs> he said, you sound like an alcoholic to me. So, uh, you know, and I just, I've picked up these little things along the way and, you know, and, and those things that they're in my, the back of my head. And I, uh, um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, I, uh, I guess it was uh, 2016. I decided that I wanted to sell my condo um, and move to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And my sponsor at the time was like, "You are out of your mind." He's like, "I grew up in the Midwest. People move from the Midwest to California. They don't go back." And I said, "But you know what? I grew up in California, and what I have learned about being sober is that no matter what I do, as long as I don't drink or use, I'm going to land on my feet." And so, and if it doesn't, I'd sold my condo out there, made a you know, I bought it when the market was down and sold it when the market was up. So I had a, some money in the bank. And so I moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. Four months later, I moved down to Sarasota, Florida. 
the dealership I went to work for bought a Toyota dealership. They wanted me to go down there and run it. And then I didn't like it there, so I moved over to Miami. And then I didn't like it there, so I moved to Austin on June 1st of uh, 2018. And uh, so, you know, I always say that uh, uh, Cincinnati was too cold. Sarasota was too old for me because it's a retirement. It's like home of the newlyweds and the nearly deads. And, uh, and then I moved over to Miami and found out that I was too old. You know, that's a, that is a tough pill to swallow at like 50, 51 years old. I'm 56 now. And, you know, when they start looking through you and around you and they don't even notice that you're even there, it's like, oh, my God, I got to go somewhere else. And so uh, that was uh, definitely... Miami is a great place. I love Miami. I love visiting there. Um, and when I took a job there, uh, they said, do you speak Spanish? I went to work for a big BMW dealership down there. And I said, no. They said, well, 80% of our customers speak Spanish. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to get the other 20. And, uh, <laughs> so um, I went to work for them. And uh, they uh, they said, well, you know, we're, we're a very multicultural city, Miami. And I said, well, it can't be any more worse. It can't be any more cult- multicultural than L.A., what I came to find out is that the multicultural, uh, they're all Latin countries like Cuba and Mexico and Venezuela and all these countries in South America, and, and they all hate each other. And so they take it out on the way they drive, the way they do business. I mean, that machismo attitude. I mean, I, every day I'd come to work and think, oh, my God, what is, what's it going to be today, you know? And so... Um, it, was, it was just hard to do business there. I have never been asked to commit fraud more in <laughs> that short amount of time than my whole career with BMW. That they, and it's not all of them, but it's like the way they come at you is that as soon as you yell at them, they're like, okay, we can do business now. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I just don't want to become this person. And so I moved to Austin, and uh, you know, I joked I was halfway back to L.A. when I stopped in Austin and stayed. And so... Um, you know, I was working for BMW South Austin. I hated it, and uh, I came to my first meeting on Saturday night at eight o'clock, the first weekend I was in town, and I knew Solis because I'd heard him share at the Bill Graham Auditorium. Uh, he was the Al-Anon speaker, which always used to. I was like, oh my God, this is gonna put me to sleep, you know. And um, <laughs> no offense, any Al-Anons out there, but I just. Uh, um, and then he got out this little clicker and he told this little story with, and here's me in the Navy. And I'm like, a oh, fuck? There ain't nothing there. But he like took us in on a little story. And so when I met him here, I'm like, are you the guy with the clicker? He's like, I am. I said, oh, I heard you share like in 2003 in San Francisco. And so I asked him, I said, do you know anybody taking on any sponsees? And he said, um, why don't you go ask Bill Hayes? And I said, okay, so I'm going to ask Bill Hayes. And Bill said, no, if I take on any sponsors, my sponsor will kill me. So I'm back to Solis and I said, you know, he's not taking on sponsors. I said, are you taking on sponsors? And he says, why, yes, I am. And I said, well, why didn't you say something? He said, because you didn't ask me. You asked me if I knew of anybody. <laughs> he said, you need to be more direct with your questioning. There's no beating around the bush. And I was like, touche. So, um, I've worked with him ever since. And you know, when I got here, I hated that job at that BMW dealership so bad because we had a, I just hated it. It, You know, they wanted me to work the same amount of hours I worked in LA, you know, 12, 14 hours a day for a third of the pay. And the problem is I was 51 years old. I knew what I made 10 years prior. And uh, I, it was just a mind fuck for me, pardon my French, but I, um, and I, every week I would bitch about it and every week I'd bitch about it until finally I quit. 
And uh, I was like, I'd rather go serve, star, uh, work at Starbucks four hours a day slinging coffee and get my life back than to keep going down this road because I was ready to jump off the roof because I thought, here I am, I'm 51, 52 years old, and I'm, this is it. Maybe this is all I'm worth, you know? And um, it turns out I could probably sell ice to an Eskimo. I didn't know that. So I went to work for a friend of mine doing foundation repair, and it's, uh, um, he's, he's in the program. I met him after the Thursday night meeting. I asked him, and he was happy to be looking for somebody, and I went out and bought a little truck and uh, jumped in 100%, 150%. You know, it, it was a... In order to work for him, you know, I had a BMW at the time, and I couldn't show up at a house in Killeen that's worth $6,000 in a $60,000 car. You know, they'd run me off the property, and so I went out and bought a little Nissan Frontier, just a little putt, putts around car, and hmm. and uh, and it's been good. I've been with him, well, four and a half years, and, uh, you know, so I share that. You know, I've changed careers twice. You know, I started out as a truck driver and then I went to work at BMW and then I moved around the country and then I ended up in Austin. And, you know, everything that I've done has had a purpose. And, you know, a lot of times when things are happening to me, I look back over my life and look at the things that have happened for me. And, uh, you know, like failing that drug test, you know, I wouldn't be here today probably if I'd, I probably wouldn't be alive if I was still doing meth, you know. And, um, you know, if you're in a, Wherever you're at in your recovery, whether you're in treatment or you're in uh, early sobriety, you know, the things that are happening right now is not a, uh, like I used to have sponsees over at the treatment centers and I'd tell them, you know, just stick with it, stay with it. Just, it's one day at a time. Just, you know, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth and keep your mouth shut because we all think we know better than whoever's in. The thing is, is that what's happening today, a year from now, if you stay sober, is not likely to be the case then. You know, as long as you're working your program and you're uh, doing what you're supposed to do, um, I look back over my life. I mean, I'm afraid to go out now because it's just, I would lose, all my friends are in AA now. I still have, I have some friends who are outside of AA, but most of my, the guys I go to when I'm in trouble uh, are in AA. Um, and so that kind of brings me up to current. I, uh, my brother, uh, so my, my oldest brother passed away in 2008 from a massive heart attack and cirrhosis of the liver. He lived fast and died young. You know, he was, we used to joke that he was on everything but roller skates, you know, and uh, he, uh, he passed away. And then my mom in 11, my dad in 2012, and then my brother needed a lung transplant uh, five years ago, and they did a bilateral lung transplant on him. He had some sort of a, it wasn't cystic fibrosis, it was a type of fibrosis. And so, um, I don't know what the medical term, but anyway, he was in the hospital 77 days. His wife advocated for him, and he basically got another five years out of it. And so, uh, he... uh, also got like a kidney transplant. I mean, he's had a lot of medical problems and he had a, uh, a spot on his ear and they went in, they said it was cancerous. So they cut half of his ear off and then, uh, they moved over to his chin. He had this big lump at Christmas time and they did radiation. They thought they got rid of that. And then in February he called me, he was coughing up blood and they did an MRI or whatever they do on him and said he had terminal lung cancer. And so it's funny cause my friends are like, was he a smoker? I'm like, you missed the part where he had a lung transplant. So <laughs> smoking doesn't have anything to do with lung cancer when you don't have your own lungs anymore. But um, 
I guess I'm just a smart ass. So. Um, and uh, so, you know, I started going out there like every other weekend and spending time with him because that's what I was taught. That's what I was taught to do. You show up for your family when they need you. And, you know, I called him every week and uh, I went out there about a month ago and, uh, you know, he was six foot two and 230 pounds. And uh, when I saw him uh, right before he died, uh, he weighed maybe a hundred pounds dripping wet balls and just you could see every rib. It was just he it was just. It was horrifying, but he was still in there. And so, you know, I was able to be there for him. And um, he passed away on July 27th, and next weekend is the uh, service for that. But, you know, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I was able to show up. I mean, that's what this program has taught me, just show up. You don't have to. uh, I haven't cried about it. Maybe I will at the funeral. I don't know. Maybe I'm just numb to it all because I buried every. Well, that's the problem with being the youngest, you know, you, you get to bury your older brothers and sisters. And so the thing that is weird about it is the only, it's just me and my sister It's left now. And it's, it's like, but it's part, you know, life's in session, you know, things happen good and bad in my life, but life's in session. As long as I don't drink, um, I'll, uh, I'll get through it. Um, just real quick. I heard this when I was young, I was a couple years sober. I'll leave you with this. Uh, this lesbian, she would come in with like nipple clamps on. She was like 80 years old. Arlene was her name. And she stood up at the podium and she said, sobriety is like sex. It's got to get hard in order to get good. (laughs) So I'll leave you with that. Thanks for letting me share.